Hey, Matt, do you want to make a podcast? <laughs> uh, what's going on this week? Well, uh, yeah, we've, we've had some interesting updates this week um, that have kind of, you know, come, come to a T. So they've been, we've been slowly introducing more languages and more locations to 1Password. And we now have uh, the whole service available or coming soon in, in 11 languages. So out of those 11, I think we have about five or six in various places now. And then, you know, we'll ramp it up throughout the uh, coming months. But it's really exciting. It, it, you know, it, it's not just the fact that we have some of the apps in, in different languages. You can sign up in French and your whole experience through will be in French. So we remember what language and we, you know, pass you on to the apps and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's really exciting. We've, we've done this in response to a, a demand from, from Europe and all the, all the countries and languages that have come to us. It's really interesting to see that we have a much broader audience than, than kind of English speakers and Americans. <laughs> it's really easy to be a bit xenocentric around this whole thing because yeah we are all english speakers i mean we've offered one password you know the apps in many different languages for a number of years now but i love the fact that we're really embracing that at the service level and going out and getting some professional uh, localization done on, on this stuff and it's it's really cool I'm, I'm i'm excited that this is getting out there and that you know it's one of those things where if one password is not available in your language uh, and you know, you're signing up for it and using it, it feels almost like a like a second class experience. But if you're able to you know to complete the whole process and use the service in in your native tongue, that's got to be a pretty good feeling. It's got to give you a pretty good feeling about the service in general. So I'm excited that we're doing this. Yeah. So the the marketing site is available in in lots of different languages as well, and and that that kind of follows through to when you're signing up and everything like that too. And like I said, it's you know it's in response to our the traffic hitting our site, speaking different languages um so for example like just the traffic from europe is risen like 70 percent. wow it's great that we're kind of moving and expanding into into new areas that's awesome very cool and that's all i've got oh well you know what that's fine listen no news is good news <laughs> what else is is going on in the world we should we should dive into some watchtower weekly here so the big interesting story of the week is not about passwords and it's not about authentication tokens or anything like that. Bloomberg put out an article about what they are calling the big hack and how China used a, a tiny chip to infiltrate, you know, all, all these companies in America. There are a lot of moving parts and it's a really interesting article. Uh, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. And um, Rene Ritchie does a, a great teardown of, of all the all the moving parts and, and everything that's kind of interesting about this. Essentially, what the article claims is that hardware from servers bought from an American company uh, but manufactured in, in China have had, through bribes or threats, have had small, like, t we're talking like the point of a sharpened pencil, small. Yeah, a, gr a grain of rice, yeah. Like a chip that size added to the board. And because it's, you know, it's a motherboard of a server, it can essentially tell it what to do and what information to pass to other servers. And it can then be told by another server to run information and, and run code that essentially can't be traced and, and is very hard to find out what's happened. 
But the the weirdest thing is the whole thing has been aimed at Apple and Amazon. Like they're the, they're the big names that things have coming from here. Right. And you know Amazon, for example, run AWS. That's like one of the biggest backbones of the internet. Amazon Web Services. Yeah. Yeah. And Apple, of course, have iCloud servers. But the most interesting thing about this story is the fact that. This is either a mess up from Bloomberg that they haven't got it right or they've heard rumors and built it up from there and, you know, they're trying to get some limelight or it's a cover up from everybody else because the replies from Apple and Amazon and and now the Department of Homeland Security, along with uh, GCHQ, which is the government headquarters for communication on the British side, they have all said that there is absolutely no fact in this. Right. So you can't say that if you're not sure about it. Later on down the line, someone's going to go, "Okay, but if we look at history, this is actually what happened and and you were wrong. That's so damning of a thing to say. It's not like hmm, uh, early reports indicate or anything like that. They're they're extreme. They say this is not factual. Right. It's, it is the re- the responses, the public responses from the companies. First of all, the fact that there have been public statements issued. I think it, this is the kind of thing where it would be very easy for, for Apple and Amazon to just say nothing and just, you know, not issue a statement. But for them to issue, not only issue a statement, but then to go to some pretty great lengths in that statement to completely discredit the Bloomberg article and basically calling them the, the news organization that cried wolf yet again, uh, because they sort of refer to some earlier claims that Bloomberg has made around this stuff and saying like, yet again, I'm not sure what Bloomberg is talking about. This is not the first time that they've done something like this. We always perform our own independent investigations. And this is just factually inaccurate. And there's just there's so much happening around this. The actual story itself is almost not the story. It is everyone's responses to the story is is becoming the story. So I truly don't even know what to think at this point. It it sounds plausible. It seems incredibly unlikely that a story this large Bloomberg would let go to print without having verifiable sources that it can sort of lean back on and say, yes, this this person in this position of, of power that would know this can confirm it. They don't quote any sources. I mean, they don't identify any sources in their article. But it just seems very unlikely that something like this would even be published without really being vetted. Because I mean, right now, Bloomberg is kind of looking a little dumb for doing this with with how much everyone else is denying it. It's bananas pants. That's what this is. Yep. Yeah, I, I think the, the best sentence from the article, the wording of it just made me chuckle. It talks about Elemental, which is, is one of the companies that was manufacturing these or, or purchasing these servers or the motherboards for the servers. Well, so there was there was Elemental. They ended up being the service that powers Amazon Video, Amazon Prime Video. They were buying servers from Supermicro, which is a San Jose company, uh, and those servers were being manufactured in these, in these Chinese plants. And that's where the the hack supposedly originated. So Supermicro by way of by way of China uh, through this company called Elemental. Right. So the the sentence is two of Elemental's biggest early clients were the Mormon Church, which used the technology to beam sermons to congregations across the world, and the adult film industry, which did not. <laughs> 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 that's so good that's so good like even in even in this this uh this crazy article that talks about some pretty serious stuff i, I like that the author took uh took the time to put in some nice clever wordplay there so even if the article is complete bunk at least they get points for being entertaining indeed 
Uh, and then we have some good news for a change. Yeah, this I like this one. I've, I've been listening to uh, some other podcasts talk about this one and, and reading up on it a little bit. We'll just read the headline, which is uh, weak passwords are banned in California starting in 2020. And the more detailed thing is that manufacturers are no longer allowed to sell hardware in California that contain either like simple default passwords for their for their devices, or they must guide users when they're setting up these devices to provide a password of their own. And this is things like routers, any sort of, quote, internet of things device. So, uh, you know, your smart thermostat or your your video cameras uh, that connect up to your network, all of these things no longer can just ship with uh, a username of admin and a password of password. These now have to have either strong, unique passwords when they're shipped, or the user has to be able to set up a password when they're setting up the device. And this is great. And, and you know, we talk about this is just in California, but this is going to filter out to everywhere that these devices are sold. I don't believe that uh, electronics manufacturers are going to have special builds that just ship in California. This is the type of effort that once you've done it for one locale, that's just the new norm. And that's how you ship it out everywhere. Yeah, that's great. I mean, th- some of the coverage of this was like, oh, well, you know, they're not forced them to update firmware or anything and uh, you know i just think anything in the right direction is is good at the moment yeah and you know that you can certainly have the conversation around well you know does this need to be a law like do we need government involvement in regulating this and the answer might be no you don't but at the same time this seems like not something that's necessarily uh government overreach but rather just instilling a, a good practice that i don't think that anyone can argue against this practice in terms of the benefits that it provides to general consumers. Awesome. So, Matt, that's that's the news uh, this week. We don't really have much else going on, but we do have something super, super awesome that I'm, I'm really excited about this week. For the first time in the long, long storied history of our podcast, we are bringing on a guest who is not someone who works at 1Password. I mean, I just don't know how we had the time to organize this. <laughs> I know. Yeah, there's, a, there's a big nugget of truth in that one. So today, we have uh, Glenn Fleischman on, and uh, why, don't we, why, don't we, uh, why don't we get Glenn on the call, and then we'll, we'll really kick this off. So welcome to the show, Mr. Glenn Fleischman. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you for coming. This is a very auspicious occasion for us because you are the first non-one-passworder that we've had on the show. We've had uh, internal special guests. You are the first external special guest, and I am super stoked. This is going to be great. I feel very special. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So, Glenn, uh, what's, uh, let's just dive right in. What What's your backstory? How long have you been in the industry? What What should we know about you? Well, I've been in the industry too long. I have to go do like a crusty prospector voice. Now I've been in the industry for too long. It, <laughs> you know, I got started with um, with computers in some form in the late 1970s, and I never stopped. But uh, but I've been writing about um, technology and kind of how to things since the mid 90s, and uh, developed a bit of a specialty uh, after I started. Um, I had my own internet company in the in the starting in 93. Four, if you can believe that, early internet web development company. And uh, as one had to do, I learned a lot about security and encryption because none really existed. Right, right. <laughs> hey, Unix wasn't really developed for being available worldwide all at once to anybody. Uh, so I learned a lot about 
the the underpinnings of it then. And then I just kind of kept my ears open. I've been reporting on it, interviewed a bazillion experts. Um, you know, I'm not a mathematician or a cryptographer, but I can kind of fake a lot of it just because I get enough of the standards and methods that I can ask, I think, intelligent questions and then represent what people who know it better than I do actually know. That's my that's my strategy is, you know, I don't know if I know this for sure, but I'm going to ask three experts who really get it. And then I can help people understand it by trying to, you know, filter that information into something that's less technical or mathematical. I mean, that's a superpower all in and of itself. That's that's great. Well, my background is in graphic design, of all things, in, in the uh, the 80s. If you were doing graphic design, you suddenly had to become a computer expert. So I can talk to people who are, you know, designers and average users, because those are the people I was working alongside as I became a more sophisticated computer user. Um, I understood what people needed to know. And that's kind of been the trend for my entire career. Very, very nice. Uh, so you've got a new edition of your book out now, A Practical Guide to Networking, Privacy, and Security in iOS 12. It looks uh, super awesome. I love that that you're publishing these books. Who who are these aimed at? Is this like the superpower user that needs to know all the all the nerdy stuff and it goes real deep? Or uh, what, do we, what do we got here? So I would say it's for anybody who is trying to understand how to master some of these concepts because they're frustrated at following instructions or there are no instructions or there's not enough information about it. The book was originally networking security. And then a few versions ago, I was like, gosh, I feel like there's so many privacy issues that are not well explained. And even with, uh, you know, this is about it's focused on Apple. So I don't have to deal with, you know, the world of Google or Facebook or whomever directly. And Apple is pretty darn good about disclosure. And when they've been called on things like location tracking, they may be resistant, but then they're like, all right, we're going to expose this more. We're going to show you what we're tracking. We're going to let you, you know, clear the random identifier that's used to connect your machine for advertising. You can click a button and reset it. But I feel like even though they expose that and they present it in a, a generally readable format, you still have to dig it up and find it. You have to drill down. So I think the privacy part in particular is for everyone, because unless you've made a study of it, you may not be able to figure out all the ways in which your privacy is being exposed, and not just by Apple, but by third parties. Um, I'll call out one of the great features Apple keeps, or features Apple keeps adding over time, is they're reducing the ability of websites to track people, because websites use increasingly, I should say ad networks more than websites, but but ad networks and, and targeting marketing engines, they use increasingly sophisticated techniques to reach people. And so on the privacy side, it's good to know what Apple's doing on your behalf. But also if there's a switch, you can flip like, well, actually, I need this feature. So I need to turn that off or oh, I didn't know that existed. I want to enable it. I don't want Apple targeted ads to come to me and there's a switch for it. Um, but the rest of the book, I think networking and security tend to be more obscure issues. So if you run into anything that's not I connect to a Wi-Fi network and I'm I'm on uh, <laughs> anything but that or, you know, hey, I'm using Find My iPhone, but I don't understand the difference between lost mode and lock mode. You're like, well, that's good because it took me hours of reading and testing to understand. And if you go and look at the right place in Apple's support sites, you can find it, but it's kind of a mess of documents. So it's that kind of thing, too. Like, how do you use your product safely and securely if you maybe have uh, what you think is a fair amount of knowledge on some topics and not on others. Or if you're really just like, I want to, you know, I want to install a VPN. Everyone tells me to install a VPN. What is that? How should I make a choice? That kind of thing. So I'd say not for the most sophisticated users. They may find some of this too basic, although there's things they wouldn't know in it unless they'd, again, spent hours of research. Um, but I try to make it approachable for people who are just trying to make a certain kind of thing work or understand a certain kind of thing. 
Oh, that's fantastic. There's there's definitely a need uh, for something like this that distills that type of information down into a digestible format. Uh, because you're right, like, it's very easy to get overwhelmed, I think, of, you know, hearing like, well, I, I, I'm supposed to use a VPN. That's I heard someone say that once, like, what is that? And so to to be able to to really enable people to go and, and answer these questions for themselves via your book is that's really cool. I like this a lot. So uh, you had an addition for iOS 11 and now you've got this one coming out for iOS 12. What's uh, what's the diff there? What's the, what's the gulf between between these two books? Well, gosh, you know, when I was revising it, I thought uh, this doesn't seem like that much of a change. Like there are bits and pieces, mostly little things and cosmetic stuff. Uh, and a lot of it was very nice. You now, Apple keeps shaving the edges off stuff. Um, but the big change that I came across, and I know, uh, strangely, you all might know about this. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but the, the change in passwords, I actually finished writing the uh, revision to the book for iOS 12. I released it before iOS 12 was out using the public betas. And then once I got my hands on it and got the one password update in particular, I realized, uh, you know, the change in passwords between iOS 11 and 12 is profound. And I'd felt when I was in beta testing, even though it was the same, because I wasn't beta testing uh, one password or other password managers, I didn't get the sense of how much of a difference it would make. And I didn't have have the uh, SMS fill-in working exactly right either. So once I started working with it, like two weeks after the book came out, I basically released an update with an entirely new chapter devoted specifically to password management in iOS 12, because I think it's so much better. And it's also, I wonder if you agree with me on this, I think iOS 12's password management tools, like not their, um, not the iCloud keychain part, it's a little confusing because there's uh, they're trying to encompass a lot into one interface. So that lock icon uh, that you click or you tap rather, that does a lot of duty, right? I mean, I don't know how you all feel about where that fits in, but it's, there's a lot they're trying to do in one interface. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. On the flip side of that, what I like is that it, it is a very focused user interface. It's one of those things where you've got less uh, less to do more within, right? So you're naturally limited in what your actual uh, what your actual implementation is going to be. So yeah, there is a lot that we attempt to do there, but at the same time, our you know we were sort of gated into what our actual solution was going to be. Right. I, I kind of like how how simple it turned out. I think I like the simplicity a lot, and I'm surprised about how much I need to explain about it and how much testing I needed to do to understand exactly what's going on. So if the I feel like one of Apple's guiding interface philosophies is it doesn't give you a hundred choices. Typically, it typically picks the best thing and presents that. And a lot of the time, Apple doesn't give you a backup solution. Like if the thing that they think is the best thing doesn't work, you're out of luck. You go to a third party or you just can't do it. In this case, it's like there's three levels of backup. So you, it presents what it thinks is the most likely login for you. If that doesn't work, you can then, you know, tap and get a list of matches, right. Mm -hmm. From multiple from its internal or one password or whatever. And if that doesn't work, then I can launch the third party app, like one password and then do a certain, you're like, okay, well, this is great because it means any scenario that comes up, I'm actually covered. And I feel like it's both very Apple-like in finding an optimal first line solution and a little non-Apple-like in giving me a lot of options to be more sophisticated because I think they really want people to be using unique passwords, unique strong passwords everywhere, and they're willing to open up their approach and be more um, inclusive and broad in what you do to ensure that people have access to that. And I think that that feels like something 
it's a little different. Like it's not totally unexpected. And, and ever since the share sheet let you bring in password management, uh, you know, through that uh, mechanism, that's been an improvement. But this is something different. It feels like it's just part of the system. And I think it does help. So some people are always just going to use the default. But if you're someone like me and you've been using 1Password for years, this transforms how I use iOS and, and then you add the SMS two-factor autofill on top of that. And it's like just, you know, they ground down those frictions that just add extra steps like, oh, this is, you know, it's tedious. I only, it only takes a few seconds, but it's irritating. Now it's just not irritating anymore. Yeah, it's a bit landmark in that I would be interested to know if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is the first time that Apple has really provided the ability for uh, for its users to decide to use like a third-party component as the default because you can't set a default mail client. Yeah, no, you can't. Right? You can't set a default browser. Like these are all things that like if you're on an iOS device, uh, mail and and Safari are what you use. And you can certainly install third-party browsers, but they don't integrate into the system of being able to, you know, they don't accept links and, and stuff like that or, or, the, or show the compose sheet when you create a new mail message. But this is like if you're a 1Password user, 1Password is now part part of the system and it really is very very seamless yeah, it's a first class citizenship thing it's like the like the share sheet is second class and it works and it's really pretty clever and good and so if i'm using uh photos and i want to do something within photos i can use the share sheet and like bring up um you know an exif tool or or you know use mark there's all these things i can do as kind of either plugins or pass it along but this is first class and it's uh and i think it's good because you know obviously uh you know you know your sales figures or, or your download figures, but some percentage of people are, uh, and it's probably a very large percentage, are always going to use the built-in thing. And the interface improvements in iOS 12 make it more likely that people are going to use, be, be smarter about the passwords they pick because it's less effort. And then for the percentage of people who use third-party managers, and suddenly it's like, oh, all my commitment to using 1Password now pays off because I don't have to go through a three-step process. It's just there. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, is there anything else you want to tell us about the book? Like, did we, is there anything we didn't touch on yet? Uh, well, it's, I think uh, not reading it from start to finish is my best advice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I also, I really do also encourage, uh, the, the way I develop these books too, is I get email from people, both who've read the books or, you know, I write the Mac one, uh, Mac 911 column at, uh, at Macworld, which is encompasses, despite its name, encompasses all the iOS and Mac and iCloud stuff. And uh, it's great fodder to understand what people need. But I really do love to get people's, um, you know, oddball scenarios and things that aren't working. And sometimes that turns into, you know, sections in the book. If I can't answer their question directly, I might have to go research it. And uh, that's always the great thing is like this book has developed really largely out of what people have asked me about over the years. Um, but I do think uh, anybody with issues and questions about the area, having problems, trying to set things up, or just trying to understand how it works. That's what the book is is for. It's uh, you know ex, uh, exposition, but also step-by-step instruction. Nice. All right. So now the most important question, uh, where can people get it? Well, you know, I have this great URL, which is... Someday I got to get a better one. Um, I have a blog that um, that I run, and this is uh, sold via the blog. So it's glog, G-L-O-G, dot glennf.com g-l-e-n-n-f.com and if you go there and click on the books link you'll find uh, the practical guides link rather you'll find uh the book and uh and uh people listening to this podcast 
You get 25% off the cover price by using the code 1Password at checkout. How's that for a deal? Oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Folks will, uh, folks will definitely appreciate that. So it's glog.glenf.com and click on Practical Guides. And I know it's a great URL. Someday I need to – I never thought I'd write that many different books uh, in this series. So I don't have a <laughs> – I need like Prac Guide or something like that. But that'll, that'll come in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, do, do you also have a Practical Guide to Networking Privacy and Security dot or <gasps> what? Why don't I have that? <laughs> All right. Well, also, listen, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been very cool. I love I love that this book exists. And, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited that, that you were here today. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for the continued development of 1Password, which is, uh, in fact, recommended in the book. You didn't know this, but the book, it's recommended in the book because I got to recommend something. And it's a system I'm comfortable with. I've been using for years and you folks keep improving it. So thank you for the development. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That. So that was awesome. I I I love uh, that we had Glenn on today to talk about uh, talk about his new book and and uh, all sorts of good stuff there. Very very cool. And uh, hopefully we'll get some more non one passwordites one passworders one passwordians. Okay, yeah, none of those are good, but I guess we'll come up with something better. Passwordologists. Oh, that's a good one. No, I like that. Absolutely not. Jesus. Ugh. Um, so Matt, we got we got questions again this week. People are using the Ask One Password hashtag on Twitter to ask us real questions. Um, what's uh, what do we got here? What's up first? What's the first question? So sure, it's from Stephen on Twitter, and it says, "Do you recommend that folks have a long?" First of all, can I just appreciate the fact that he said folks? Not not enough people say folks. I can get away with saying folks. I can't get away with saying y'all. True. You can't say y'all. That, that sounds wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I could say y'all, but even I can't. Like, that's, it's really, we got to get like some, some good, you know, American Southerners. They can say y'all. You and I just sound awful if we say that. But anyway, go, can, sorry, continue. Folks, wonderful word. Go ahead. Do you recommend that folks have a long and simple master password or one that is short and complex or does it matter since you have the secret key? Okay, so I love this question. And uh, I'm going to answer it two ways. One is uh, the the right answer uh, that is sort of like our guidance for everyone. And then the other answer is like the technical answer. Anyway, he's asking between two things. Should we have a password that is... that? I, so he's asking long and simple master password. And what I really believe he's talking about there is, uh, you know, we can you can use the password generator in one password to generate memorable passwords that are long and but are made up of a series of words. Uh, correct, horse, battery, staple is, is the sort of universal example now, right? Four words that don't have anything to do with each other, but are also easy to remember. So use one of those or use something that is short and complex. So maybe like a, a random character password, but something that's only like eight characters long. And it's got, you know, capitals and numbers and symbols and stuff like that. And so let's answer that part of it first. And the answer is you should use a pass a master password that is, su- you know, sufficiently long. In fact, we'll include this in the show notes. Um, the aforementioned Goldberg actually has a great article on our blog, uh, which I believe is titled Towards Creating Better Master Passwords. And he gives you some great tips on how to create a nice uh, strong, unique master password uh, that you can remember and you can easily type. And so that's the that is the overarching recommendation. Your master password should be a nice long password, but it is also something that you can type relatively easily and, and is easy to remember. Uh, you know, 
I have a, I use a, one of these memorable uh, wordless passwords for my master password, and it's very long, and it takes me, you know, a couple seconds to type out, and sometimes I flub it, and it's annoying, but uh, it is, it is a very strong master password. His second part of his question, though, I love, does it matter since you have the secret key? Now, for those that, that don't know, or I, we've probably talked about it on the show, when you create a new onepassword.com account, uh, you provide a master password, and then on the device where you're signing up, we generate a secret key for you. And this is a long string of letters and numbers. And effectively, what we do is we take that secret key, and we take your master password, and we combine the two together to create a very long password. Now, this is, I am glossing over a lot of details here, but we basically take the two and we combine them together to make a really long key for encrypting your data. And so even if you had a master password that was one, two, three, four, uh, when combined with a secret key that is in incredibly long, you are going to end up with some very strong encrypted data. So you could potentially have a short master password and know that your data is still going to be well encrypted because of its combination, this your short master password's combination with the secret key. However, it is still recommended that you have a long a uh, unique master password, and that's what you go with. So great, great question. I love that it dove into the technical details around uh, like the secret key and how that affects uh, the way that your data is encrypted. And in fact, I would I would recommend that you go to onepassword.com slash security and read up. It's it's not it's not too deep. Uh, you will not be asleep by the time you get to the end of it. But this is a great overview of uh, of how the different parts of one uh, password work together to really create a strong, safe environment for your for your sensitive information. So yeah, awesome. All right, Matt, I, I have some issues with the next segment today. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what I've done here is both upset yourself and myself. Is awful. That's correct. Yes. I mean, I'm going to have a go at pronouncing this, but I cannot ugh, enough uh, to, to, to be Welsh, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I absolutely think you should go okay, first. Okay, great. Let me give you a hint. The, the first bit... Although it looks like Lanfair is actually uh, Clanvire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. It's it's Lanfair, Polywog, uh, Goggery, Chewy, Randbow, Lanet, Silo, Gagagag, Arch. Yeah. It's just that simple. <laughs> I mean, the name is actually uh, from the 1860s, uh, so it is reasonably new. <laughs> Compared to um, the settlement, which, like, you know, people have lived in that area um, since the Neolithic era. So that's pretty cool. Oh, wow. So it's Hanvaya Pushgwingich Chach Drobui Lancelia Gogogoch. Wow. I think I missed out some of the middle. It's okay, because uh, it wasn't right anyway. It. This is fascinating for me. Like, I really want to know. <laughs> I, I got to go and do some research into, the, into the, the backstory of this. We'll put a link in the show notes for this one as well. Uh, all right, Matt. Well, I think that that's kind of it for this week. I think this has been a pretty good show. Uh, I guess that's not really for us to decide. That. <laughs> I'm very proud of myself. Uh, I'm proud of you. I think that, you know, we've done it yet again. Uh, how many episodes do you think we have left in this in this zero with season? Uh, I think about six more. I think so, too. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, Matt. We'll uh, we'll talk again soon. Love you, Rue. Love you, too, Matt. Bye.